that their days were limited because the prophets spoke of their last days. And so they were aware that their last days was coming. They just didn't know when. And they didn't understand all that was to be understood and was preached later about Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews uh, is showing these Hebrew people the superiority, and that's the key word, the superiority of Christ and his covenant and his kingdom, his sacrifice, his priesthood, uh, in every way showing his, uh, uh, his rule, his authority, and the fact that God had planned it that way before he ever made the world. And the old system was merely a shadow or a figure of better things to come which came in Christ. And so that puts an impact on Jesus' statement at the cross, it is finished. Because he was crying out with what breath was left in him triumphantly. It's finished. And of course, him knowing the scriptures and him being of the scriptures, he was looking into the face of the devil as well as us. And he was telling that rascal, it's over. The war is over. It started back in... In the very beginning, 4,000 years before his crucifixion, but he was telling the devil, it's over, bud. I won. It's finished. And that also, in, that also included the idea that prophecy and everything in God's plan was fulfilled. You remember Jesus made it very clear. I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9. Matthew, 5, Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, excuse me. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus began his ministry, and he knew the mind of the Jew. Uh, he'd been raised a Jew. He'd lived amongst them. He'd studied in the, in the, in the synagogue with them. And he knew their, uh, their uh, understanding and he said, Think not that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And there's people that's got the gall to say that the, he didn't fulfill everything, that there's yet prophecies that's yet unfulfilled. 
He said, For verily I say unto thee, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. That included the all of the Old Testament. Until all be fulfilled. And so when he said it was finished, he was telling the devil he lost, the battle's over, and I fulfilled all that God planned. All right, so here in Hebrews, uh, just always remember the book, uh, entitled the book Superior, because it shows Jesus superior in every way. Chapter 1, he's superior to the angels. Chapter 2, he's human, but he's superior, because he's been chosen to be a sacrifice. Chapter 3, he's greater than Moses. He's superior to Moses, because Moses was the house that God was building, a part of it, and Jesus was the one who was who was the God that was building it. And uh, so greater is the house builder than the house itself. And and then everything about his priesthood is superior. So we, we got into the 10th chapter. And let me... Uh, so here in this chapter, this will be Paul's uh, final section uh, on the mosaic uh, nature... Uh, of that priesthood in the ministry of Christ, how that he fulfilled it. This is the final bit in chapter 10. From chapter 10, we'll go into his admonitions and exhortations to these Hebrews not to leave it. But Paul, uh, but the writer's finishing up as he compares and shows the superiority of Christ's uh, sacrifice over them old animal sacrifices. And so with that thought in mind, let's read down to verse 10 where we stopped last week. He said, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Notice that? It's not the very image, but it's a shadow of good things to come. It can never, with those sacrifices that they offered, which they offered year by year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Now we studied the what that year by year offering done. It kept telling the Jew, you, you still are looking forward to the sacrifice that's going to take away sin. Because these don't. These are merely a shadow as they forespeak. But they had to be offered every year. But the superiority of Christ's sacrifice is it was offered once for all time and never to be offered again. All right. For verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. So they were conscious of sin, even though they offered them sacrifices that were uh, God declared was for sin, as they looked forward to the cross of Christ. But they offered them year after year after year to tell the Jew it hadn't come yet, it didn't hear yet. And so whatever sins you've committed this year has got to be uh, taken care of in the following year or at the end of the year. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance. You see that word remembrance? He's talking to the mind of the Jew. There's this conscious awareness in verse 2, and now he says there's a remembrance again made of sin. How often? Every year. And so they were continually reminded of their sin, even though they offered these sacrifices year by year. 
For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. So they offered these blood of bulls and goats, and they didn't take away sin. They merely spoke of the one who would take away sin. It hadn't come yet. Uh, well, at the time those things, those laws were given. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, speaking of Jesus, he saith, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not. Now here Jesus is speaking back in Psalm 110. And here prophecy is declaring that in God's plan, uh, sacrifices and offerings uh, of animals that would not, but a body hast thou prepared me for this offering. Now is a body, the body of God himself, the creator, if he offers himself, is that going to mean much more than an animal sacrifice? Yes, it will. Does it have the power to cleanse the conscience? Yes, it does. Does it have the power to uh, uh, to uh, in its reminiscence to remind the Jew that he's forgiven forever? Absolutely, and that's what we have in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Romans 8.1 So, uh, so he goes ahead quoting what the Lord said in prophecy. In burnt offerings and sacrifices, verse 6, for sin thou hast had no pleasure. God was not pleased with the burnt offerings uh, to satisfy him. Now he's the one that ordered it. He's the one that told him to do that. But it was only in a shadow that he was satisfied because uh, he was anxious for that shadow to appear. <coughs> in the proper time, and you read about it in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of the times. That means when time was right, on, on God's calendar, he sent forth his son, born to the seed of woman, born under the law, that he might rescue them who were under the curse of the law. What was the curse? You sin, you die. They were dead. And here's the perfect sacrifice. Verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And so he humbled himself and emptied himself, Philippians 2, 5. And he came to this earth to be offered as a sacrifice. Above, when he said, Sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings, and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Well, they were offered by law. Law couldn't... Uh, uh, have no mercy in it. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And in that he took away the first, that he might establish the second. What's he talking about? The law. He took away the first, that he might establish the second. Now, in my Bible, I draw the line under that because I want to be reminded. I want to be able to find it if I'm talking to somebody that doesn't have a clue about the the, the, the difference between the covenants. He took away the first that he might establish the second because the first was a shadow, don't you see, of better things to come. Verse 10, and here's where we're at this morning. By the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, I'd underline that. How many times did Jesus have to be sacrificed? Their sacrifice was every year. He offered his sacrifice once and for all. Does that not speak of the superiority of Christ and his sacrifice? Yes, it does. 
once and for all time, never to be offered again. So, let's begin there in verse 10. Uh, I did read down to verse 10, didn't I? Yes. Okay. Verse 10, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Uh, that will that's mentioned there is definitely the sacrificial work of Christ that fully satisfied the will and desire of the Father. That's what he planned. That's what he wanted. That's what he declared in prophecy. But you missed it. That's why Jesus was a stumbling block to him. But boy, when Peter pointed out what prophecy said about him, in Acts 2, there was a short, maybe five-minute sermon. And how many Jews? 3,000 Jews obeyed the gospel in one day. <laughs> they were cut to the heart because, man, they could see the continuity of thought in regard to the plan and the purposes of God from the very beginning. And they began to see it then and began to come together. Up until that time, they were like a lot of Christians. They just read scripture. And, yeah, we read our scripture. But it didn't mean anything to them. They didn't study them. They just read them in the synagogue. All right, so uh, uh, that is one sacrifice that God gave, that gave God what those of the old system could never give. They couldn't give forgiveness of sins. They couldn't clear the conscience of the, of the sinner. That is the reason it was said of God, you were not pleased by those sacrifices of the law. Psalms 40, verse 6, and he quoted it here in chapter 10, verse 5. You were not pleased with those sacrifices. He ordered them, but he wasn't pleased with them. In other words, they didn't do what he intended to do in the reality of the covenant when Christ would come and be uh, the answer to those shadows. So by that God-pleasing sacrifice of the body of Christ, the writer affirms that we have been made holy. Now back in chapter 2, verse 11, it was already being affirmed in the beginning of this letter uh, that the holy Jesus was able to make his people holy. And he does because we wear his righteousness. He's the one that done the work. Remember Ephesians 2, 5? Uh, it's in Ephesians. <laughs> 2, 5. Ephesians. Well, well, by grace are you saved through your faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of your works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, and we need to rub that raw. We need to have that ingrained in us. It's by His workmanship we're saved, not by yours. Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8-10. And in chapter 3, verse 1 of this Hebrew letter, the writer addressed his, hear, his readers as holy brethren. Uh, but it took the offering of the body of Jesus to bring about such holiness. And that's the only way we're counted and considered holy is by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice he made. Because God, remember 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, 
God took our sin and put it on Jesus and took his righteousness and put it on us. And so how are we holy? Jesus made us holy. We're not holy in and of our works. Never will be. He made us holy. He made us acceptable unto the Father because when the Father sees us, he sees us walking in the footsteps of his Son. And he looks down and says, there's my sons down there. There's some more. Because they branded with the life and the teachings of Christ and they're following him. It was only by his vicarious suffering on our behalf that Christians are made partakers in his holiness. That's the only way, not by our works. And so quite logically, those who are holy are permitted to draw near to God in worship. That's the only thing that draws. Nothing will else will. All sinful uh, impediments have been removed. And so we can feel clean, pure, holy because of what he did. He made us that way. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They merely spoke of the one who one day would take away sin. In this verse, the author returns uh, to uh, failure of the sacrificial law of Moses. Here was his failure. It could take away sins. In verse 1, he had discussed the inadequacy of the year after year sacrifices presented on the Day of Atonement. In this verse, he emphasizes the futility of their day-after-day sacrifices. Every priest, he says, stands. Now, mark that word stands, because we're going to get to that in a minute. Here, these priests stood continually in the Old Testament under that covenant. They were standing priests. Should I write that on the board? Keep it in mind. Stands. Every priest stands quite evidently at the altar before the former tabernacle offering sacrifices. They stood there to offer sacrifices. He stood uh, constantly because his sacrifices could never take away sin. So what was his standing continually year after year, uh, the priest? What did that say? It didn't take away sin. He didn't, he, he didn't finish his job. He's still a priest next year. He's still a priest that has to offer the same sacrifice next year, next year, next year. Okay. His standing, that word standing now, here we are. His standing was in sharp contrast with Christ who offered one sacrifice for sin forever. And then what did the Hebrew writer say? He sat down at the right hand of God. What does it mean when a man sits down? He has finished his work. It's over. He's not like those priests under the law that stood every year to offer them sacrifices. He offered a one-time sacrifice, and he sat down at the right hand of God. He's no standing no longer because he's already finished it. He fulfilled it. And so a seated priest indicates that his work is finished. And a priest 
<coughs> that is seated at the right hand of God, as Jesus was, indicates that the Father is satisfied with the accomplished work of Calvary. And so after Jesus had went through Calvary, he's ascended into the heavens with a shout, the victorious shout, it's finished. And truly it was. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But those sacrifices were repeated again and again and again, many times for the same sin, and maybe even for the same individual. It is evident that yesterday's sacrifice will not take care of today's sin under the law of Moses. Their last sacrifice would not take care of the next sin. Of course, by contrast, the sacrifice of Christ forever solves the sin problem, even for sins that's not yet committed. And you've heard this pulpit say many times that when Jesus died, he died for the sin problem. He died for the sins of Adam to the end of the world, beyond our lifetime and our children's lifetime. He died for sin, period. And then he offers a free ticket of salvation to all those that will come and, and obey under his authority, obey his message, and be baptized for the remission of sins. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And isn't that a simple picture? And who cannot but cont can, uh, who does not have the ability to pass that kind of a simple message and a profound message as it is on to your neighbors, your friends, your relatives? But you know, because of that damnable thing called education, the way we, we treat it nowadays in America, boy, if I didn't go to school, I can't do that. And we've got this word, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, to where we don't. And we won't. And you've got to get over that because Christ didn't give you an authority to run around saying, I can't. That's ungodly. You'll do whatever God sets you in the place to do. You'll answer. The, you'll stand in the gap. A soldier standing with his weaponry. And the general puts him out here as a guard. I can't do that. Yeah, you can. You're fighting an enemy has no mercy on you. And so that I can't is got to be removed from the man of God. Man of God don't have that I can't. It'll swallow the lump in his throat like <laughs> like old Gideon. And you may say, Lord, are you sure you got the right fellow? <laughs> but you'll go and stand in the gap if there needs be that somebody stand in the gap. All right, verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This verse triumphantly claims mission accomplished. And so if you've got room in your Bible, put an arrow out there from that verse and write mission accomplished so that the next time you read it, it will just burst forth in your mind all the thoughts that you've been collecting on that idea. And they claim you never forget anything. You just can't recall it because it isn't that important to recall. Unless you're dying and they claim then that your life, the whole life passes for your mind. I don't know that, but that's what, that's what they say. 
Alright, so mission accomplished. That's what verse 12 declares. And that to the satisfaction of God who sent this priest. He's now satisfied. He wasn't satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats. Yet he commanded it because it was to forespeak of the best of the better sacrifice. It was God who invited Jesus to sit at his right hand. Psalms 110, verse 1. Now that's a passage cited in Hebrews 1, verse 13. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies uh, a footstool for your feet. And of course, that one sacrifice for all time wraps up the sacrificial requirements for uh, the restoration of sinful man to full fellowship with God. And so Jesus tore, ripped that curtain of separation, that veil of separation in the temple, and he gave us access into the presence of God, just like Adam and Eve had. And one day we'll go home. We'll be like the prodigal son. We'll journey home with a humble spirit, saying, Father, I've sinned against I've sinned against you and against heaven. And the father's too busy uh, falling on his neck and kissing him and hugging him as he saw him afar off coming. That's a beautiful picture. God, it says the father looked and saw the son coming afar off. That means that he looked all, all every chance he got in his work, he looked down that road to see if that son was coming. He knew that when that son ate of this world, he'd, he'd puke, he'd vomit, and he'd see the beauty of what the father had and he'd come home. And he did. He came back with an acknowledgement. He confessed his sins, and the father was just tickled to death. Kill the fattest calf. My son that was lost has now come home. That's God's anxiety for you and me. Now, you may not value yourself that way, but God does. God looks in compassion upon the worst of humanity. You and I don't, but He does. And you and I need to learn how, because He demands it. If He's our Father. We're so busy judging things, you know. Oh, look at that ugly thing that He done. He murdered somebody and he raped somebody and he abused children and said, yeah, well, you probably would have too if you was raised in the circumstances he was. So get off your high horse and recognize we're all saved by grace. You have no place to get up and crow as though you were somebody. Humility will not allow you to be somebody until you acknowledge Christ and in that acknowledgement you become Somebody. <laughs> Did that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> Verse 13. It says, Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Well, that's a quote not only of Psalm 110, but also of Psalms 2. What did it say? God said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I've set you up as my son. 
Ask of me the heathen, and I will give him for thine inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy footstool. Boy, how do you know wonder that Psalms 2 ends with a, a warning to the great men, the kings, the judges, and all that rule this world. It says, kiss the son quickly while he's in the way, lest you... Uh, lest he be angry just a little and you perish because he has authority. He has all authority. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, so, verse 13, since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. From the time that he sat down, he waits. Where did he sit down? At the right hand of God. He finished his work. He said, it's finished. And he went up into the clouds. And the angel said, why stand you gazing into the heavens? That same Jesus whom you see ascending into heaven will one day come in like manner. He's coming back for us. And Thessalonians says, he's not coming to put a foot on the earth and go back to Jerusalem and establish some kingdom according to the fallacies of man's teaching." It says that he will see him in the air and will meet him in the air and will ever be with the Lord in the air, not on the earth. He's not putting one foot on this earth. They don't read that, see. They just assume he's coming back to Jerusalem. Going Well, anyhow. So, from the time he sat down, he waits. His universal dominion is affirmed in Old Testament prophecy. Psalms 2, Psalm 110. The statement is drawn directly from Psalm 110, verse 1. The nature of his reign is clearly established in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23 through 28. That's the nature of his reign. The enemies that's spoken of there relate to all those who reject his high priestly ministrations. Of course, all unbelievers and all those uh, revert back into Judaism, all those that do that, after their conversion to Christ are called by the, whole, the Hebrew writer the enemies of God. And so when they revert back, they're enemies of God. That's chapter 10, verse 27. They are ones that were guilty of crucifying the Son of God all over again in Hebrews 6, 6. They're the ones that crucify Him again when they go back. They're saying, in essence, His sacrifice is no good. The term footstool that's used in verse 13 is an indication of the total and devastating defeat that is forthcoming to the enemies of Christ. And when he comes to receive his people uh, is the time when his enemies will be vanquished to eternal perdition. Now it's going to be something. And we can see it now by the word of God, but it'll be something to see it in reality. Obama. And all them kind of lying, politician, bastards are going to be under his footstool, under his authority. 
and they're going into perdition. Now, no one wants to see someone go into perdition. The Lord certainly didn't. But it's just a fact that a lot of men are going into perdition. And Jesus said, Wide is the gate and broad is the way, and many there be that enter therein. Down that road is perdition. There are a lot of good people in there. A lot of people we know. A lot of relatives. Hell would be glutted with a bunch of good people. Verse 14. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Verse 10 presents the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice. Here it is. It made men holy. Now, in this verse, those who are, made, are being made holy have been perfected forever. In the process of them being made holy, they're already forever uh, made perfect. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Baptized into Christ. Are they ignorant? Yeah, they are. But their holiness comes in a process of being made holy by virtue of uh, walking with God. What kind of perfection is intended in this verse? It definitely relates to their sacrificial perfection. They will never need another sacrifice. The blood of Christ has eternally redeeming power. That's chapter 9, verse 13. Under the law, the Hebrew was never perfected as to his need for another sacrifice for his next sin. Not so of the Christian. That the writer is speaking of sacrificial perfection. Uh, see the uh, content of verse 15 through 17 and the commentary relating, relating to it. In those three verses, the author will com uh, comment on what God meant when he promised in Jeremiah 31, 34, in these words, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. But that pertained to the Christian, not to the Jew, until he become a Christian. But under the Jewish system, there was always that remembrance of sin. That's why the priests in the Old Testament stood continually to offer sacrifices. When Jesus offered his sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God as he offered once and for all time the perfect sacrifice. You see the superiority of Jesus and his covenant of the love of God? Verse 15, the Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. First, he says, well, just here the author wants to join the promises of the new covenant with the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus. He, his point has just been made in verse 14. New covenant people are sanctificially forgiven, uh, forever perfected. The Holy Spirit is credited with the inspiration of Jeremiah's prophecy concerning the establishment of the new covenant 
and the Holy Spirit inspired the writer's interpretation and application of that prophecy that his sins would be remembered no more, God said. That's the nature of the new covenant that was promised to him in Jeremiah 31. Verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Now the author wants to be sure his readers know that he is uh, commenting on the prophecy of Jeremiah. That is why he repeated several phrases from it. Uh, commentary has already been given on the content of this prophecy back in chapter 8, and it will not be necessary to repeat it here, uh, repeat them here. The verse separation uh, in this context is quite awkward. Verse 16. Uh, should begin with the words first he says and then present the, uh, the citation from Jeremiah for verse 17 joins the first he says with these words then he added so verse 17 then he added their sins and their lawlessness their lawless act acts I will remember no more quite evidently this is the most astonishing element of the new covenant a sacrifice that would allow God to remember no more the sins of the people there is more than appears on the surface in this statement since God has forever standing uh, sacrifice for Christ to cover sin he no longer uh, e uh, even records the sins of the people their sins are covered and do not go to the record book of God. That is the full implication of what the prophet Jeremiah foretold. He remembered the sins of Israel, even though they were forgiven back then. But they were not covered back then. God remembered them until Calvary. And there they were taken away. And so God no longer remembers them. And it is now clear that uh, uh, that sins are already covered at Calvary. So they are neither recorded nor remembered against his holy people. Verse 18. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Now the Greek simply says there, where remission is, there's no more sacrifice needed. Remission is, says Christ, uh, offered standing remission. This verse discusses the verb tense of forgiveness. It is a present tense verb and therefore speaks of constant sacrificial atonement being available to God's people. No more sacrifice for sin needed to be made even for the next sin committed. In this way, Christians are sacrificially perfected. Now, I'm sure that you got every word of that. See, that's why we study, because we don't get everything. 
we we look like a little child trying our best to understand the Father. And we don't always get that job done the way we want to or maybe the way we should. But we continue to look, don't we? We continue to look to Him for direction. The Lord is my shepherd and I'll not ever want as long as I look to Him. I can't read that clock back there. Is there time up? Quarter till. Huh? It's ten minutes till, Dad. Ten minutes, okay. Well, we finish right there. That's a good place to finish. Because next week, the writer's going to shift gears here. Uh, and uh, so he, com- in, in beginning in verse 19 through 25 of chapter 10, next week, he's going to go in combining all of the ingredients of the new system in a song of praise, uh, an explanation of the privilege that now belongs exclusively to Christian people. And you don't want to miss that, do you? Raise your hand if you want to miss it. Is there anything in this world that will hold dominance over that? So we've made this a priority, haven't we? Amen. I love the book of Hebrews. I love the book of Romans, and I, yet I don't understand all of it. I keep looking. Every time I look, I see more beauty. That's where my. That's why marriage is a lifelong thing, because you keep looking at your wife, and she keeps looking at you, and you just keep seeing more beauty along the way, more virtues that speak of beauty. Beautiful virtues. Yeah, yeah. Empty, 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 empty. That's all, folks. Okay.